Welcoming everyone, hello and welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, the Human Rights Foundation's conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how we can collectively put human rights at the top of the world agenda. My name is Kristen Anna and I'm a research fellow with HRF. HRF is an international nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in the common cause of promoting liberal democracy. You can visit our website, hrf.org, to learn more about the work we do. Please also make sure to follow us on Twitter for more conversations like the one we'll be having today. This conversation will be recorded and released as a podcast. Today, we will be examining how dictators and authoritarian regimes exploit democracies to launder their ill-gotten gains. We will also discuss the United States' most recent efforts to combat this issue. We have two guests joining us this week. Casey Michelle is an investigative journalist and the author of American Kleptocracy, which studies how the United States has become a haven for stolen wealth. We also have with us Paul Massaro, who is a counter-corruption expert and a senior policy advisor for the U.S. Helsinki Commission. The views expressed here by Paul are his own and do not represent an official position of the U.S. government. We will also have some time at the end for questions. If you have a question, please send a DM directly to me on Twitter. So Paul and Casey, thank you for joining me today. It's good to talk to you both again. Thanks so much for having us, Kristen. So to get us started, this last year has really put corruption in the spotlight. In 2021, U.S. President Biden recognized corruption as a threat to national security just a few months before the release of the Pandora Papers. More recently, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and subsequent sanctions on Russian oligarchs has shown how much dirty money from authoritarian regimes is actually hidden in democratic regimes. Um, so to introduce our, our topic, Paul, I'd like to start with you and then pass it over to Casey. Um, in an episode of the Hudson Institute's podcast, Making a Killing, which I encourage our listeners to also check out, you stated, Paul, that modern dictatorships rely on access to the West. How so in the context of our conversation today? Yeah, excellent. That, that, that might as well be my mantra. Uh, modern dictatorship relies on access to the West. And I really think it describes 21st century politics. And that is to say that you know, when we were looking at the previous generation of totalitarian regimes with the USSR um, and Red China, although it's very much Red China again now, um, you know, the idea was they were closed regimes where the elite, you know, you'd, you'd control your elite corruption. Now, that doesn't change. But the elite would effectively be closed off from the West. So they couldn't enjoy what was in the West. And ultimately, you see the downfall of these regimes precisely because these elites who, you know, no man rules alone, even in a dictatorship, you need cronies. But these cronies essentially look at the West and they say, we want what they've got. Now, modern dictatorship has been able to essentially uh, short circuit this formula that once led to the transition from dictatorship to democracy um, through the emergence of opaque global finance, through deviant globalization, through sort of the, the ability to, you know, buy multiple passports and all the sorts of stuff we're going to talk about today that allows dictator elites to turn their countries into piggy banks, loot their countries, and enjoy the high life in the West while they deny the, their, their own people uh, the very rights and freedoms that they enjoy in the West. Um, and this corruption that they bring into the West, you know, event, you know, continues to corrode our system there. They capture our elites and are actually able to get advantageous outcomes for their dictators that they serve, thereby perpetuating this system and ultimately leading to the undermining of democracy. Yeah, I'll just 
pick up on what Paul uh, Paul just mentioned. Obviously, I'm going to echo everything that uh, that Paul uh, said, and, and probably will will say throughout our conversation today. But there was a term that Paul just used in describing this this phenomenon, and especially some of the differentiating factors from where we are now versus where we are 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. The entwining of these kleptocratic regimes into broader, in this case, Western financial systems, using and abusing democratic financial systems, uh, the openness and the, as Paul just said, the opacity, the secrecy that is available to these regimes, to these oligarchic figures, to these broader kleptocratic dictatorial regimes themselves. I mean, I, I think it's worth noting at the outset this is not a phenomenon limited to any one regime, any one dictator, any one authoritarian organization or network or nation. This is a typology we see across the political spectrum. This is a typology we see across the world of regime after regime after regime turning in particular to Western financial networks and beyond that using Western financial secrecy provisions to hide their financial tracks to make it that much more difficult for investigators or uh, tax authorities or journalists to actually track and trace the finances linked to these regimes, to these dictators, their families, their inner circles being used for any number of reasons, whether it's to hide their wealth, to use their wealth, to manipulate policy elsewhere. Think of things like anonymous shell companies. Think of things like anonymous real estate purchases. Think of things like, in the United States of America, anonymous private equity and hedge fund investments. These are all financial tools. These are all asset classes that have been linked time and time and time again to these dictatorial regimes, to these authoritarian figures, to hide their finances, to manipulate uh, policy, uh, and to entrench their regimes that much further. And I should just add maybe one more thing. And again, you know, there's going to be a lot of me and Casey echoing one another and agreeing most likely. But this builds strategic dependencies. We talk a lot about sort of strategic corruption being the main modus operandi and tool of authoritarian regimes. But this builds these strategic dependencies that then make it impossible, very difficult um, for the West, for democracies, for the democratic world to respond to dictatorial aggression. Um, I think that, you know, we've 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 kind of seen the lack of response for now. 20 years, essentially 20 years of appeasement, at least, maybe 30 years, um, with regard to Russia, certainly 20 years with Putin. Um, but, the, the, you know, now we have seen a little bit of response, but that response came as a little bit of a surprise because, in fact, I think everyone was expecting a lack of response. What, only what really changed there, the one thing that really surprised everyone there was that the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian people, uh, were so determined to fight and stand for the values that we, you know, really sometimes only claim to believe um, that that elicited a response from the West. But I think that it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. What about 2008? What about, you know, the invasion of Georgia? What about 2014, the first invasion of Ukraine? What about the election interference uh, in the United States? What about election interference across Europe? What about funding right-wing parties? What about assassinations? What about, you know, um, Interpol abuse? I mean, the, the list goes on. And even though we're talking right now, understandably, Paul, as you just mentioned, Russia, the Russian case, the case of, of Putin and the Kremlin, this is by no limited to that regime, to that country, to that government. This is, again, a phenomenon, a typology, a series of uh, decisions and creations of networks that extend to, frankly, any and all authoritarian or dictatorial government elsewhere. We see the same phenomenon out of China. We see the same phenomenon out of Venezuela. We see the same phenomenon out of Iran, out of North Korea, out of the Gulf monarchies, over and over and over again. 
the allowance of illicit or suspect or dubious or dirty wealth rising from linked to these regimes, these oligarchic figures, uh, and welcomed in many cases with open arms and in so doing perfectly legally because of all the financial anonymity, the loopholes, the policies that exist, especially in places like the United States of America, that allow for the infiltration of this wealth, of this money, uh, in the creation of, as Paul just mentioned, these networks of strategic corruption. Because at the end of the day, frankly, as we have seen over the last 10, 20, 30 years in the Russian case and elsewhere, all too often it just so happens that uh, you know everyone has a price. Even these nominally democratic institutions, even these nominally pro-democracy nonprofits, think of things like think tanks and cultural centers, museums, advocacy groups, time and again have opened their doors to illicit suspect wealth linked to these dictatorships, linked to these regimes. And we're only just now finally seeing the tide turn because it's only just now that we're finally realizing just how high of a price we're going to have to pay before things finally start moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Thank you both. Russia is definitely on everyone's minds today as we have this conversation. So to talk about the U.S., um, Casey, book, American Kleptocracy, um, you talk, you argue that the U.S. has become the go-to destination for kleptocratic money laundering. Of course, most of us, when we think of money laundering, we think of places like the Cayman Islands. However, you note the point, you, you mentioned previously this idea of secrecy. So what is going on in the U.S.? What loopholes are being exploited to allow the U.S. to become such a haven for illicit wealth? Yeah, Kristen, thanks so much for that question and for the, uh, the, the, the book plug. And I know my editor would be happy if I said that everyone should go out and purchase a copy of American Kleptocracy available in bookstores now. I mean, the, the summation, the thesis of the book, you know, kind of it really boils down to one reality. And the reality is when we think of offshore havens, when we use that term offshore, and I think everyone has a pretty good idea, right? Offshore is financial secrecy. It's financial malfeasance. It's where oligarchs and, and dictators and the like go to hide and launder their money. When we use that term offshore, what we're actually doing is using a very outdated term, or at least very outdated imagery. You know, for years, for decades in the late 20th century, the middle and the late 20th century, you know, that term was, was quite literal. I mean, these were places like Bermuda, the Bahamas, uh, you know, the Cayman Islands, uh, Malta, you know, smaller islands that existed literally offshore that provided all the financial secrecy that these regimes, these governments, these figures needed. But it just so happened, and I'm, I'll be spoiling a good bit of the book right here, but it just so happened that, especially after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s and the 2000s, the United States of America, as well as other Western jurisdictions, realized that suddenly there was this massive amount of wealth linked to suspect sources, or as we called them at the time, you know, transitioning democracies, hopeful democracies um, that were saturated in all kinds of oligarchic and increasingly dictatorial wealth. So much of that money was looking for a home. It was looking to be hidden. It was looking to be washed clean and have any kind of links to its original source eliminated. Uh, and it just so happened that, um, you know, the United States of America had certain policies available, made certain decisions at both the federal, but especially at the state levels. I won't go into any of the details right now, but there were a series of decisions, a series of loopholes that allowed the U.S. to become the global capital of anonymous shell company formation, anonymous real estate formation, anonymous private 
investment vehicles, on and on and on, all these different policy spaces and loopholes added up to one very clear reality, certainly by the beginning of the 21st century, that it wasn't these small islands that we associate with offshore that were the biggest financial secrecy havens in the world. It was now the United States of America, and especially states that we would never really think of in terms of global finance, states like Delaware, states like South Dakota, states like Wyoming, that time and time and time again, the oligarchs, the dictators, the kleptocrats kleptocrats of the world uh, were turning to for all their financial secrecy needs. I think I I just want to, you know, add to that, to the kind of like, you know, policy thing. I think it's worth recognizing, um, because we need to fight this too, that there was this, you know, post-Cold War philosophy that basically when, you know, if we economically and financially integrate, and if money is going, you know, from country to country and so on and so forth, then democratization will follow. Um, and this this kind of idea that, that the, the, you know, the very summarized well with the German change through trade, the Wanderdeutschhandel, but really it was was everybody's philosophy for, for quite a long time, at least for the first two decades, you know, after the Cold War. Um, and then only only then really started to break down in the recent years really has broken down because of uh, the work of people like Casey and other journalists who have kind of demonstrated how this philosophy is built on sand and in fact is totally backwards. Values need to go before profit, not the other way around. Um, but this philosophy made it very difficult to do anything about this kind of this, these kind of policy choices that were being made um, because they all seemed in line um, with this notion of economic and financial integration will lead to a more peaceful world, will lead to democracy. Um, and we've learned that it's exactly the opposite, that economic and financial integration with dictatorships has allowed corruption um, to come West and has actually prevented us from being able to respond um, to provocations, aggression, all sort of stuff from dictatorships, and, and all sorts of global problems for that matter, like climate change, global organized crime, whatever. Um, and and ju- only just now has that philosophy begun to change. Yeah, I was going to say, just just to jump in, one, one quick coda to that. I know I'm you know, speaking as an American, as someone who focuses much of his work on the United States of America, and obviously Paul here today as a, as a fellow American as, uh, as well. You know, I, I just... Outlined some of right some of the American transition, but this is by no means an American story, especially over the last 20, 30 years. This is a far broader, as to you know, to use the political science term, race to the bottom among especially Western jurisdictions to attract so much of that suspect and illicit, questionable and kleptocratic capital. Right. So I just outlined all these American industries that have profited, but this extends to things like the German banking sector or the Canadian real estate sector or the French luxury goods sector. I mean, you can look at country after country, whether it's in, uh, uh, in Europe, in North America, so, you know, the, these nominally clean, nominally non-corrupt countries in terms of global corruption rankings just so happen to be over and again the home for all of this illicit, suspect, dirty wealth through, again, policy decisions were taken to attract this money in the first place, regardless of the actual cost to the West, to democracy, uh, and to any kind of policies therein. Right. And I think we want to mention the UK as well. That's obviously been in the news um, or coming out of the Pandora Papers, just how much of like London real estate has been bought up by these ruling families like in Azerbaijan and other uh, regimes. Yeah. Uh, and that note, I, I would say just, Kristen, there's a fantastic new book that just came out uh, a month or two ago called Butler to the World uh, by a, a wonderful UK journalist, uh, Oliver Bulla, which outlines the UK uh, story and saga in and of itself. I would highly recommend 
absolutely. It's on, it's on my list. So to go back to the focus on the U.S., um, I want to talk about something that we're going to also talk about later is these enablers in the U.S. that allow um, individuals, kleptocratic regimes, dictators to bring this wealth into the U.S. So um, whoever, Paul or Casey, wants to start first, can we talk kind of about these middlemen and how they create that loophole? Casey, you want to go ahead? Because that's basically the topic of your book, no? Uh, well, that's certainly one of the elements of the book itself. I mean, again, this money doesn't move on its own. It doesn't, there, there isn't some kind of built-in property in which the money, you know, you make it and then you just turn away and somehow the money ends up clean. It, you rely on, you need the services of those in the West, those in these democratic countries that, again, because of policies, because of loopholes, are perfectly and freely able to take as much money as they want without having to ask any questions whatsoever about the provenance of that wealth. Now, think about that, right? That means that if you are a, uh, if you're a banker, you're a financial manager, you're a real estate broker, uh, you are a, um, you're a hedge fund manager, and we're talking about industries that are worth trillions of dollars. Um, if you have... Uh, a lawyer, if you have another financial advisor, another shell company operator come to you and say, we have X amount of money that we would love to invest. We would love to let you have access to this wealth on your end. We know full well you'll get a slice of profit along the way. And we know full that you don't have to ask any questions about where this money comes from in the first place. Well, you know, I suppose in, in a certain sense, who would say no? Or to use perhaps a different framing, if there isn't any kind of regulatory oversight, if there isn't any kind of regulatory require, requirement to ask where this money comes from, to track and trace the actual provenance of this kleptocratic wealth. Again, we're talking about dictators. We're talking about oligarchs, those that are connected directly to the most heinous regimes on the planet. If there aren't any requirements to ask questions about where this money comes from, then why should we expect those bankers, those financial advisors, those shell company operators uh, that already have all kinds of uh, uh, hurdles of anonymity they have to sift through in the first place, even if they wanted to get to the actual source, why would we expect them to do that in the first place? And so what we have seen is time and time and time again, law firms, public relations firms, uh, again, financial managers, shell company managers, private equity investors have turned to these loopholes, all of the anonymity available, and then beyond that, the lack of any kind of requirement whatsoever, then act as effective foot soldiers, act as effective henchmen for these oligarchs, for these dictators, for these authoritarian figures to move and hide their money. And in so doing, they don't necessarily know whose money they are moving, they are hiding, they are laundering in the process. Again, so much of this is saturated in anonymity. The anonymity is baked in. The anonymity is the appeal. And then beyond that, the lack of any kind of regulatory requirement is why we see this class of, as we call them, enablers crop up in the West, in especially places like the United States of America, that have become these go-to servicemen and service women for all the kleptocrats of the world. So that's it. That's an excellent summary of who these people are. I guess let me just say a word on the enablers. I mean, without the enablers, that is, without these unscrupulous um, mercenary lawyers and real estate agents and accountants, and, you know, I call them unscrupulous and mercenary, but these are really the top guys. I mean, we, when, you, when you think about who these people are, these are top four accounting, these are white shoe law firms, you know, these are not 
your small town. These are not your 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 small city law firms and real estate and so on and so forth. Um, these individuals they 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 build large firms based on accepting blood money, um, and without them, modern dictatorship would not function. So I mean, it's it's really important to digest that without them, there would be a handful of stubbornly isolated states. But for the most part, the quote unquote end of history would have arrived. You would have you would have the, the kind of hybrid inter uh, integrated intertwined economy based you know authoritarian capitalist model simply would not function it just would not work you need these top 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 enablers to work for you now one thing i'll say about the enablers versus the kleptocrats is you know the the kleptocrats the oligarchs the the ccp operatives whoever they may be you know need to be brought to justice um, they need to be, they need to have their assets confiscated, they need to be sanctioned, you know, they need to be tried and ideally jailed um, for, for their crimes. They grew up in environments, uh, in often tough environments, uh, they're often gangsters, um, they all had environments of, of, of rules that were uncertain and so on and so forth, and they kind of developed a mentality um, that they really express today, a cynical, nihilistic, I am the boss, everybody's like this kind of mentality. Now, the enablers have no such excuse. They are individuals, for the most part, who have, grew up with every single privilege, went to Ivy League schools or Oxford or Cambridge or wherever, or Sciences Po, some of the smartest people in the world, and they chose, they chose, after all of that, they chose to undermine democracy. So to me, the enablers really verge on some of the most despicable people on the planet. Um, they sell out our country. They sell out our systems, our democratic systems. They sell out the democratic world. They sell out human rights and they sell out the rule of law that if you're a lawyer, you're actually uh, uh, take an oath to defend. You take an oath to defend the rule of law and then you sell it out. So, I mean, it's, it's really an extraordinary thing. I often think of during, during the Cold War, if you accepted Soviet money and you were an American, we'd rightfully view you as a traitor. And I really do think we need to get to a mental space, not just a policy space, but a mental space where it's simply unacceptable to accept dictator funds, any dictator money at all, simply unacceptable. And if you do it, your peers will shun you. We will shame you. You will be viewed as a pariah. And that's where we need to get with the enablers. Yeah, and I just want one quick note on on that. I mean, I know Paul has you know again uh, uh, laid out as it pertains to uh, you know why these enablers are not only profiting from these uh, systems, but through their own choices. But you know the the additional element of this is not just that they're making significant amounts of money on this, not just that these are again the white shoe law firms. Uh, the leading accountancy firms, uh, the leading real estate firms that are happily turning the other way and happily not bothering to ask any questions about the source of funds or what it may be uh, being used for. But beyond that, they are the ones in Washington, in Ottawa, in Canberra, in Brussels, in London that are lobbying for the continuation of these policies in the first place. These yeah. are the primary, primary lobbying groups that are, are slow walking, that are stonewalling that are trying to halt any kind of reforms possible. These are groups like in the U.S., 
the American Bar Association, which is the primary legal organization, which was one of the primary advocates against transparency in shell companies. You can see that in the real estate sector. You see that in the private investment sector. They don't want to look this kleptocratic gift horse in the mouth. They don't want to turn off this spigot of dirty, illicit, or suspect wealth coming in again, regardless of the consequences and regardless of the damage to democracy on this planet. Our adversaries are using the rule of law to undermine the rule of law, and it's extremely scary. It's a completely new way of operating, and it's really what kind of makes this political situation unique. Thank you both. I like that quote, Paul. Uh, just as a reminder for our listeners, if you do have a question, please send me a DM directly, and we'll hopefully get to it at the end. So before we turn over to the lobbying groups, I definitely want to address that in a bit. You mentioned, Paul, selling out the rule of law. So we've kind of already touched on the consequences of the solicited wealth coming into the U.S., how it entwines us with authoritarian regimes. What other consequences do we see of this illicit wealth coming into the U.S., both for the people living under authoritarian regimes and for the U.S.? I mean, the, so the consequences are simply massive. I mean, for those living under authoritarian regimes, it's obviously the perpetuation of the authoritarian regime and the, the consolidation of power. Um, I mean, the notion that this, th this, is a, this is a formula, I said before, there's a formula for, you know, perpetual dictatorship, because so long as your elites never get fed up, you can just keep going and going and going and going. Again, that's what led to the fall of authoritarian regimes in the past, is elites that are unhappy. But these elites, they don't even live in the system they're undermining. Now, for us, which, may, which of course, for those that live under it, it leads to all the horrors of authoritarian regimes, you know, arbitrary jailings, killings being pushed out windows, being murdered for investigations, massive corruption, theft, and, and of course, death from corruption. I mean, I mean you know, like cor corruption itself kills more than anything else in the entire world because people starve, they, you know, can't, can't pay their rent, they can't live, and so on and so forth. I, I mean, in a lot of these countries, people are living on, uh, you know, something like a dollar a week or something like that. So, I mean, it's really horrible, you know, so corruption kills. Um, and then, of course, for us, for, for, for those in democratic societies, it undermines the system totally. I mean, it, it, it creates essentially a um, sort of lobbying class that relies on money from abroad, from these authoritarian regimes, as Casey said, seeking to perpetuate um, the dole, the system that's providing them blood money, thereby undermining the you know, will of the people and, and undermining the ability to create um, and, and sustain a democratic system. I mean, the, the horror of corruption is that these elites, you know, they come, they come here, they come to the, the West, they come to these democratic states because of the rule of law, because they want to protect their money from the next bigger fish, because they want to enjoy it. And then the, when they're here, they undermine the rule of law. And our states slowly become more like um, the states that they're from. So at the end of the day, you know, corruption, you know, dictatorship, end state kleptocracy, end state global kleptocracy is the death of the rule of law all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say it better than what, what Paul, Paul just laid out. I know much of the conversation we're having today focuses on oligarchic figures, dictatorial figures, authoritarian figures. But, I, I, you know, I do just want to kind of signpost the fact that these financial secrecy networks uh, are by no means limited to these figures in these regimes. They're also taken advantage of by other transnational criminal organizations, you know, the wildlife traffickers, the human traffickers, the narco traffickers, all these elements of, you know, truly the most heinous among us, the most damaging uh, forces 
uh, especially in the transitional space, are perfectly happily and perfectly freely using and utilizing these same services of anonymity. And in many ways, in many cases, following the exact same pathways, um, uh, financial pathways, that these oligarchic figures, these dictatorial figures are doing. I mean, this is, this is again, we're talking about, you know, the total estimates for the, the, the uh, uh, you know, what, we, what we still describe as the, the offshore world or something in the order of 13, 14, 15 trillion dollars. And again, that's just an estimate. We simply have no firm idea because of all the anonymity available to it. But, but a good kind of barometer for the, the magnitude of finance that we're talking about is that that would put it on par with about the Chinese GDP. So we're really talking in many ways, in many cases, again, to use a phrase that I mentioned earlier, this offshore world, uh, about really a kind of invisible superpower that we're only just beginning to grapple with, only just beginning to understand the actual fallout from it. And again, you can see that as clear as day in Russian aggression in Ukraine, but it, my goodness, it is by no means limited to that country, limited to that regime. Uh, certainly speaking as an American, speaking the United States of America, <laughs> as Paul well knows, I can speak firsthand, the damaging effects this has had on the broader political space, on the nonprofit space, on the broader democratic trajectory of the U.S., itself. Absolutely. And that's a, a great segue into our solutions section of this uh, discussion. So Casey, you just mentioned kind of the, the influence of foreign policy on our, on our nonprofits on things like that. Um, we are seeing efforts to clean up foreign influence in American politics uh, introduced last month in the house was the fighting foreign influence act. So, Casey, can you tell us about this act and why it's significant? Yeah, sure. No, Chris, I'm, I'm happy to. And I'll, I'll run through a quick highlight, a few highlights of it. And then I'll turn, obviously, to, to Paul because he's the congressional go-to. In many ways, he is one of the primary movers and shakers for pushing any kind of anti-kleptocracy or counter-kleptocracy policy, especially in the U.S. You know, many of the successes we've seen over the last year, over the last 18 months, have been attributed to uh, much of Paul and his colleagues' uh, work. But this was a... Um, I mean, frankly, a pretty remarkable bill that was introduced in the American uh, House of Representatives um, last month. It was a bipartisan bill uh, with co-sponsors from across the political spectrum, which for those who follow American politics may be a little bit of an outlier these days. But it does three primary things. And again, this is called the Fighting Foreign Influence Act. Um, the first prong of the bill, I, I should say any of these primary three primary things that the bill does would be worth itself worth passing on its own the fact that it brings all three together is <laughs> truly remarkable um, which is why we haven't seen a bill quite like this in, in, in the past you know the first thing that the bill would do would it would be simply preventing uh f as we call them foreign agents or lobbyists for foreign governments foreign regimes foreign political parties it would prevent those from donating to american political campaigns which it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> you know, I was just reading through the text of the bill and thinking for a second that it's still perfectly legal for the law firms, for the PR advisors, for the consultants that are freely acting as lobbyists for foreign dictators, for foreign regimes. It's still perfectly legal for these Americans that are taking all of this money from these foreign governments, foreign regimes, foreign dictatorships to, to then donate in many times on the same exact day that they're lobbying to donate to these congressional officials that they're lobbying to. So that's certainly one loophole that we have seen abused time and time and time again. That's one prong of the bill. The second prong is that it would finally ban uh, former American politicians, presidents, uh, vice presidents, um, members of the House, members of the Senate, uh, military uh, officers, uh, high-ranking uh, members of the cabinet. These are this whole cohort of high-ranking American officials. It would finally prevent them from, once they leave office, becoming 
foreign agents, foreign lobbyists, enablers for these governments themselves. I mean, I think there's a um, you know, the perfect case study of this, unfortunately, is uh, the former Republican stalwart in the Senate, Bob Dole, who was the 1996 uh, candidate for president um, on the Republican ticket. And, you know, he, he's you know, seen in many ways, rightfully so, as this kind of pro-democracy, certainly patriotic American figure. But who just so happened, which a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of, as soon as he left office, he became a foreign agent, a foreign lobbyist for dictatorship. He became someone who sold out to lobby on behalf of not American interests, but the interests of foreign governments, kleptocratic figures elsewhere. So this is one thing that would finally end that. Um, and then the, uh, uh, you know, the, the third part of the bill, uh, as I, I pull it up in front of me, is um, something that, again, getting back to loopholes, would force finally think tanks and other nonprofits in the United States of America to disclose significant donations from foreign governments and from foreign political parties. And again, this is a conversation, a far broader conversation for, for another time. But, but um, you know, in the U.S., there are foreign lobbying regulations. There are foreign lobbying disclosure requirements for uh, the law firms, for the PR consultants. But there is nothing for think tanks. There is nothing for the nonprofits, for the foundations that have been taking millions millions of dollars from dictatorships, from oligarchs, from kleptocratic figures elsewhere, and then pushing pro-regime, pro-dictatorship policies in Washington. There has been no requirements for disclosing that funding whatsoever until at least now, if this bill gets passed. Again, this would be a significant step forward in the United States of America to cleaning up so many of these loopholes that have existed for years and years and years. So thanks so much, Casey. It's a, it's a wonderful description of the bill. Um, you know, and thanks for, you know, all you've been on these topics and then on the bill itself. Um, I, I, I guess, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's because of this reporting that we know what's going on. And I, and I hate to say it, um, you know, yeah, I, Bob Dole's a, a, an excellent example. I mean, the examples are legion. The examples are legion. There are just so many former members of Congress, former members of the NSC, uh, and then, and then those are, those are senior people. So, uh, you know, you go a little lower down, it's just all over the place. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's funny. It's kind of like a pyramid. You know, we pay attention to the very, very, very top dogs. Um, but then the further down you go, the wider it gets and the more people take advantage of, of the authoritarian revolving door. That's what I call this, the authoritarian revolving door. Now people know what the revolving door is. That's when you're in government, you go work for a corporation that you are regulating and then you come back to government and then you go back to the you know, corporation regulate. Well, the same thing, I'm very sad to say, happens um, in foreign policy, except in foreign policy, it's even worse. And it's a national security threat. You you work for the USA and you protect our country against dictators. And then you go work for the dictators and you try to help them undermine our country. And then you go back and you uh, you, you work for the government and help protect them against dictators. You go back and work for dictators, uh, help them undermine the United States and democracy uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and this it has become such a normal way of operating that, you know, until recently, people barely batted an eye at it. It was just, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we pay you an extremely low salary when you're in government because afterward you'll get a great consulting job. Consultant. That's always what they you know love to call themselves. But it's consulting job or lobbyist job or lawyer job or whatever, you know, in one of these firms um, for the guys that just beforehand you were sanctioning. I mean, I mean, it's it's uh, sanctioning or or you know, helping to build cases on or helping to write laws on and so on and so forth. It's just a really extraordinary thing. And it is a huge, huge threat. Of course, in the U.S. context, it's very bad. 
but in Europe, it's even worse. Yeah. In, oh, yeah. in, 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 in Europe, you have former heads of state and government that work for dictators. Gerhard Schroeder is, of course, the you know kind of face of all this, a former German chancellor who works for a dictator, one of the worst dictators, of course, Vladimir Putin. He works for Russia. Uh, Francois Fillon, former French PM. Uh, Karen Kneissel, former Austrian uh, foreign minister. I mean, Tony Blair got uh, got his fingers into this with, uh, what was it, Casey? Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, I believe. That's correct, yep. But, but it just it just goes on. It's unbelievable. How did we allow this structure to happen? I no, mean, when they're talking about it, it's like, what? Are you, I think, are you serious? I think Paul makes not only an excellent point, but he hi- highlights a very, a very real fact. I know I just cited Bob Dole a moment ago, a you know, former Republican presidential candidate, but this is by no means some kind of partisan affair. It's not as if certain political parties or certain individuals or certain political forces are somehow more susceptible to this than others. Certainly in the American context, that has been the case where we have seen leading Republicans and leading Democrats, both more than willing to take significant sums from some of the most heinous regimes, again, on the planet. Think of the Clinton Foundation, which up until just a few years ago was more than happy to accept millions and millions of dollars from Russian oligarchs, from the regime in Saudi Arabia, from, again, some of the most heinous, the most despicable forces on the planet, and beyond that, not have any kind of disclosure requirements about what they were then doing with that money or how it may have influenced any kind of potential um, you know, foreign policy decisions or uh, uh, conversations in Washington itself. This crosses the political spectrum, which is, again, to what we were talking about earlier, why it's so heartening to see, at least in the U.S. context, an actual bipartisan approach to these solutions that we uh, have been waiting years and years and years to finally implement. And I'll just say one more thing, just because, you know, this this problem, this problem's like a real, real big problem. And it also just bothers me. It just really bothers me. They, they, you know, they buy these guys cheap, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it, 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 it you know, they, they laugh in Beijing and they laugh in Moscow, you know? I, I mean, it's, we just don't sell ourselves for that much when it really comes down to it. I mean, you know, for a few hundred thousand dollars, you can buy yourself the, the network of practically any former government official in the USA. I mean, I think Gerhard Schroeder sold himself for, you know, half a million dollars, half a million euros, whatever, uh, a year. And yeah, for, 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 for a government official in the West, that's a lot of money. But for Abramovich, you know, I mean, for, for any Russian oligarch that's sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars, I mean, it's just, it just, or I guess tens of billions of dollars, but you know, Putin, Putin, hundreds of billions of dollars, but it just blows me away. It just blows me away. I was going to say, Paul, I think there's a great quote that I was reading just the other day from one of the U.S.'s leading uh, Russia policy makers. And she was, uh, it was an interview with her. And I, I have the quote in fr- right in front of me. She said, quote, I think the Russians were surprised at how cheap and easy we were to buy. Yes. And you can extend that Incredible. to any regime you'd like, whether it's Beijing, whether it's in Venezuela, whether it's Iran, North Korea, on and on and on. We in the same phenomenon, the same typologies, and beyond that, the same damage to democracy on this planet because of just how cheap so many, in this case, Western policymakers, were to buy, to hire, and to then become effective, again, foot soldiers for these mafia states uh, that threaten democracy as it is. And what does it look like, okay? When we talk about the domestic political implications, what does it look like to your average voter in the USA, in the Midwest, or in a city, or wherever, you know? When for a bag of cash, for a bag of cash, all the democracy and human rights and rule of law rhetoric, it all just falls away. 
It all just becomes pure cynicism. No wonder we're facing democratic problems. That is a terrifying thought. Thank you both. Um, I do want to spend the last couple minutes talking about the Enablers Act, but we did get a question from the audience. What is the likelihood that you anticipate this bill will be passed? But given that it is a bipartisan bill, does is there hope for it? Uh, I, I could certainly say, looking from the, the outside in, you know, given the bipartisan nature of this and beyond that, given the actual success, and again, in the American context, especially success over the last 12 to 18 months in passing in the counter kleptocracy space. Um, you know, we, we have really seen unprecedented momentum. These loopholes ending these policies, you know, I'm not going to say one way or the other whether or not it passes, but there is an unprecedented momentum that it is being introduced into that I certainly think it's far likelier it'll pass you know, in the 2020s than it was in the 2010s or in the 20- 2000s or certainly in the 1990s. Yeah, I'll just say I worked for Congress for nearly a decade, and what I've learned is you can never, ever, ever... <laughs> You really estimate these things or say anything about them. I, uh, I, I imagine as it's just been introduced, it'll take a few years. I mean, usually a bill doesn't pass right away unless it's like a leadership prerogative. Um, but I mean, you just you just never know about these things. I mean, if, if a play is made for the national defense bill, if it's accepted, if it's viewed as a priority, if somebody gets their hands on it and says, yeah, let's do this, um, it could happen tomorrow. I mean, the the, the crazy thing about Congress is it can move very quickly when it wants to. Um, but oftentimes that kind of uh, consensus isn't there. Absolutely. That makes sense. So talking about that, this momentum, I also want to talk about the Enablers Act, um, which was introduced in 2021 after the release of the Pandora Papers. And it was recently included in the National Defense Bill. Um this, the goal of this act is to go after those enablers, those middlemen, those gatekeepers that we were talking about earlier. So, Paul, can you tell us about this act and how it's going to help close those loopholes? Sure. Uh, so the Enablers Act, believe it or not, enablers is a backronym. It's establishing new authorities for business, laundering and enabling risks to the act. Um, so okay. it's very much... Yes. Paul, can you say that five times fast? Uh, right, right. It almost it almost matches the Patriot Act, which 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 in fact, I don't know if everybody knows, but is a backronym itself. I don't know that one, but you can look it up. Um anyway, uh the Enablers Act is actually quite simple in design. Um in the United States, the only financial gatekeepers that are required to do any due diligence, that is, know your customer due diligence, which means ask Basic questions about the source of your client's funds are banks. Those are the only ones. If you're a lawyer, if you're an accountant, if you're an investment advisor, if you're a hedge fund manager, if you're a trust and company formation agent, auditor, so on and so forth, you don't need to ask any questions. And I mean, usually when people hear that, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you, don't, you, don't have to ask, you don't have to ask any questions. So if somebody comes to you with a, with a suitcase full of cash, you know, whatever, millions of dollars, in cash, you don't need to ask any questions, even if they look really, really suspicious. Nope, you don't need to ask any questions. So that's what this does, is it provides the authorities to create rules that would make these professions ask those basic due diligence questions that we should have long since asked. I'll just add that international standards, you know, uh, promulgated by the Financial Action Task Force, the United States is a part of, it's kind of the international standard setting body, have this as a requirement, have had this as a requirement for decades. And the United States is like, just never complied. European, you know, the, the, the 
European countries, our allies, everybody, everybody has these requirements. We don't. And it's really just kind of extraordinary how uh, sort of behind we are on this. There's a very common transparency standard, but it's one of the major, major key reasons why blood money um, is finding its way to the United States. I was going to say, Paul, there's, there's a great irony in this and what you just out, outlined and the fact that you mentioned the Patriot Act just a moment ago. I, I, you know, my book certainly goes into far more detail about this. You know, the Patriot Act had all kinds of civil, civil liberties, concerns and violations. But one thing I think a lot of folks aren't aware of is that it is, in many ways, the single greatest piece of anti-money laundering and counter-kleptocracy legislation we've ever seen because of the specific due diligence requirements it placed on especially the American banking sector. It went a significant way toward cleaning up the American banking sector. I will say, you know, the American banking industry was really the kind of wild west in the 1990s. If you had any kind of duffel bag of money, you could bring it to any bank you wanted, no matter... Where it was, how closely you were related to a dictator, they were happy to take your money. The irony, though, being that the Patriot Act placed these regulations on the banking sector, but also placed these regulations on real estate, on private investments, on a series of industries that right afterward, it issued, the, for, for these same industries, it issued exemptions for. That is to say, these requirements are on the books, but they're not enforced because there was an exemption that was passed 2002-2003. And the argument was that the U.S. government wanted to study the problem, study the issue, make sure we weren't kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that we weren't cutting these industries off at the knees. And they said it was going to be just a temporary study to see what the effects would be. You know, it's been 20 years. <laughs> it's been a long time for a temporary study. And we know full well what the effect of, we know just how much damage these unchecked financial flows have done to democracy in the United States and elsewhere, in the source countries and in the destination countries. And it's long past time, it's decades past time that something like the Enablers Act should be passed. So certainly as an American and as someone who works in this space, I am hoping against hope that this legislation is finally passed and signed into law. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. I know we're just about out of time. Um, it really does seem like there's this momentum, Casey, as you mentioned, and this interest. So I do hope that these these pieces of legislation can move forward and start addressing kleptocrats and authoritarian regimes putting their money in. Um, before we end, any kind of last thoughts, any words for our listeners, you know, because there will always be more work to do. I think should we pass this legislation, it will really position the U.S. as a leader on anti-corruption efforts. But what can our listeners, you know, activists, journalists, policymakers, NGOs, what can we do to help push this agenda? Uh, I'll, I'll just hop in with one, one kind of uh, a final thought there, Chris. And it, well, maybe two, two final thoughts. One, despite how, uh, I suppose, depressing some of these topics can be, because certainly the outcomes that we've, we've, we've outlined today, um, and for as dep- depressing as it can be, to cover these topics for a living, I do want to highlight. The fact that we have seen it, again, thanks to Paul's work, as well as plenty of others. Unprecedented momentum in the United States of America to finally cleaning up the American side of this, and in so doing, hopefully, set an example for our peer democracies uh, and other uh, governments, other countries, other nations elsewhere, that the U.S. can actually clean up this own mess of its own making, at least in the American context itself. Again, that's a conversation for another time, but both on the legislative as well as the executive side, we have seen remarkable progress just in the last year alone. So it's not all 
depressing topics all the time. Um, and I will say, and this is actually something that I mentioned at the Oslo Freedom Forum last month or two months ago. Not entirely sure, Kristen, how long ago that was. Time is, is very malleable these days. <laughs> but if you are in any communications with any American partners, any American officials, frankly, any Western partners, Western officials, uh, I would highly recommend bringing up the fact that so many of these financial secrecy um, uh, networks and tools and loopholes exist in Western jurisdictions and that it behooves these Western officials, these American officials to clean up these own sectors in the West, because unless that actually happens, unless that finally happens, there's no reason to think anything will change. We have all the systems, we have all the networks, we have all the loopholes in play and have been in play for decades. And again, we have seen the effect, we have seen the threats, we have seen the fallout that comes from that. So on behalf of Americans, I suppose, please, in conversation with other Americans that are still, many of whom have no idea that the U.S. is the world's greatest financial secrecy haven, please, please bring it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually wanted to say practically the same thing as Casey. I mean, it, the problem with this whole thing is it's made to be opaque. The whole idea is to build a, a perpetual system of opacity and anonymity, something we can't see. And then we all get worked up at one another because everybody's got this kind of intuition that something is wrong, that the, something has gone wrong with the global economy. It has. This is it. You know, so talk about it with everybody, not just a fish, but with your friends, with your parents, with your cousins, whatever, you know, I mean, it's just, we need to start getting this on the agenda. And I, and I mean, I, this problem, the great thing about this problem, if there is one great thing, I mean, after all that, it's like, the great thing about this problem is that it's eminently fixable, that if we actually like pass the legislation, we start enforcing this legislation, you fix it. You know, I mean, I, I, I sometimes look at the past problems, wars and all that kind of stuff. You can't, well, you can't like outlaw the Soviet Union. There was no winning against Hitler without, you know, invading Normandy. I mean, I mean, here, if we pass the right laws, it's over, you know? So, I mean, just, just start talking about it, get it in the narrative and let's like, you know, get the United States. I mean, for me, it's, you know, the USA for, for, for anybody else, it's their country and in democracies to kind of stand for the values we claim to stand for. Thank you both. This has been fantastic. Um, really appreciate you coming here and talking about this issue and also how we can fix it. Like Casey said, it is an incredibly depressing topic, but it is good to have that, that shred of hope knowing that things are being done and maybe things will change. Uh, for our listeners, thank you so much for joining. If you'd like to hear more of Paul and Casey, you can check out the Oslo Freedom Forum on YouTube and see their talk from 2022 Oslo Freedom Forum on corruption and loot acquisition with authoritarian regimes. Have a great day, and thank you again, Casey and Paul. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you.